Great to see you. Thanks for gathering with us here at Church on Mill. We'll be continuing, as Tad said, in 1 Timothy. So if you want to get out uh, your Bible and turn there, that would be great. And if you didn't bring one with you, underneath the seat in front of you, you'll find some blue Bibles. And in those Bibles, you can turn to page 576. Page 576. We'll be uh, continuing this morning. There is... um, a wonderful paragraph we're going to look at today that I am praying that you would feel greatly encouraged and blessed, and we sure want you to know as your pastors how much we love you. I have two questions to get us started this morning, get us oriented and thinking about what we're going to find in the paragraph, verses 12 to 17 in a few minutes. Question number one is... Believer, so to the, to the Christian in the room, how should you think about your sinful past? The stuff back there that God has saved you from. How, how do you regard that stuff? And to the unbeliever, so to the person who's unconvinced about Jesus, how, how should you think about your sinful past. How do you regard that? Our paragraph this morning is going to answer that question very directly for the first one and by implication for the second one. And we have been praying that the Lord would use this word to be of great encouragement and clarity to us. Before we read the paragraph and dive into those questions, Let's take a couple of minutes to remember where we are, because we're in a new book. We've only had one uh, message in it thus far. Under the, the guidance, the inspiration, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, a man named the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the letter we now call 1 Timothy, first to a younger pastor, somebody he had trained, and the church he was pastoring, so it was in the city of Ephesus. And second, he wrote it by implication to all of us, to all churches everywhere. And so we're learning to hear what God has for us in, this, uh, in these six chapters over the next couple of months. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses, you may remember, if you were here. And we saw that for the sake of love, churches must guard the gospel by correcting false teaching. False teaching might not be something you think much about or are aware of the extent to which it is a risk. But in the city of Ephesus, there had begun a big problem within the church. This wasn't outside the walls of the the family. It was inside. In that city, some people within the church had wandered off, off track. And because they wandered off track morally, they found themselves wrapped up in destructive spiritual conjectures. So rather than clinging to what they had heard, the truth of the gospel, they instead started making stuff up and twisting the scriptures that they had. This was therefore a moral problem, not just an intellectual one. Their deviation from pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith led them into conspiracy theories about 
Old Testament things that weren't actually there. And so convinced did they become that they were now seeking to persuade others in the body. If you'll want, if, if you missed that last week, or you've slept too much since then, you could look back and you'll see all of that, especially in verses 3 through 7, which we talked about last week. Uh, while we don't know exactly what their false teachings were, what the content of their false doctrines fully involved, we do know sort of the breadcrumbs or a few things that related. We know that it involves some sort of twisting of the genealogies in the Bible, and that got mixed with some kind of myths, and then they were misusing the Ten Commandments. And that wicked concoction was leading people so far away from the pure grace of God in the gospel that it could no longer actually be called Christian. Brothers and sisters, all of that is extremely helpful for us to know, to have categories for, to be aware of. Because Ephesus ain't the only place that kind of thing happens. In fact, it could happen right here among us. We could, you could, I could find myself caught in behaviors away from the Lord that I never thought I could do. And then that could lead me down into a misuse of what God says and a fanciful distortion. And so it's critical that every church wrestle through this letter in order to be on guard together. That not we become grumpy and arrogant and finger waggers, but rather we're just self-aware as a church that our biggest obstacle to walking faithfully with God as a people is not the big, bad, scary world out there, but rather the stuff that can from, arise from within us. With that in mind, Paul now turns to give his personal testimony as an example of what the real gospel does and how true teaching in accordance with what God has done powerfully transforms people. It's one of the paragraphs I'm the most excited for us to look at as we look at this great letter. So, verses 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. But... I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What an incredible section of the Bible. 
The theme of these verses is that Paul's conversion, so his, his becoming a Christian and his commissioning, so him becoming an apostle, Paul's conversion and commissioning showcase the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlike the lives and now different doctrines of the false teachers, Paul's testimony demonstrates the authenticity and the transforming power of the gospel. Paul describes that for us sort of in two parts, and we'll take them in the order they come. In verses 12 to 14, we find mainly conversation about the commissioning that Paul received. And then in verses 15 and 16, we find emphasis on his conversion. And as we look at this example, this display of the grace of God, may we who know Jesus see in ourselves that we are a display of the grace of God. And if you're not sure about Jesus, may you see that you could become that very thing through believing in this gospel. So first, Paul's commission. You'll notice in verse 12 that it begins with, with striking a note of thanksgiving. And that note then sort of rings through the entire passage. Paul was astonished. He was grateful for the grace that God had given him. He begins with thankfulness to God for specifically this supernatural strength God had given him. He tells us he was strengthened for a role that he never wanted. The last thing this historical person ever would have pursued was to be someone who believed in Jesus and to proclaim him. You see, the apostles were the, the God-given, unique authority through whom the early church was formed. These were the people Jesus chose to bring around him. He invested in them especially, and then he sent them out after he left to do the work of preaching the gospel, writing the scriptures, training others who would write some of the scriptures, and then building up a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're directly connected back to the fact that that happened. But Paul was not about that. In fact, he was the opposite. In the earliest days of the church, he wasn't an apostle, and he didn't believe in Jesus at all. Many of you may be familiar with this. In fact, verse 13 tells us, in rather graphic language, that he was the opposite of a proponent for Jesus and his church. Look at those words. It says he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That is, Paul now knows, looking back, that he's exactly the kind of person verses 8 through 11 are talking about. The kind of person who thinks they're right with God, but in fact, they are filled with resistance to him and in desperate need of Jesus. But Paul didn't know any of that back then. As a Jewish religious leader, he believed everybody else claiming to follow Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. The church is great. He is my Lord. He's risen again. Paul rejected all of that. And 
he went around making sure that anyone proclaiming that knew God hated them. To blaspheme means to speak against God. And that is a most egregious thing. And so imagine this guy going around saying to somebody, you claim Jesus? You are committing the greatest of atrocities against the one true God. In the very act of saying that, Paul is doing the very thing he's claiming the other person is doing. Isn't that how sin so often works? We become deceived to what we really are, and we point and blame others. How far did he take that? Well, the book, the book of Acts tells us, if you're newer to the Scriptures, maybe you're opening for the first time, you've never heard this story. Take that Bible, that one of those blue Bibles, and later today, look up a, a story in a book called Acts. And in Acts chapter 9, you'll see exactly what I'm describing. As people heard the gospel and were saved, then a church began to form in Jerusalem and pop up in more and more cities. As God rescued people out of sin, he then adopted them into his family. And it was evident something was happening. Paul believed that something to be heinous evil, and so he sought to snuff it out, to end it, to eradicate the lie, as he saw it, that Jesus is God and the church is his body. Paul sought to snuff out the budding of the church, believing he was serving God. But one day in Acts chapter 9, we know that he was traveling to another city to again do more persecuting of the church, when in a most dramatic way, God intervened. Jesus showed up and said to Paul, his name was then Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus told him. Imagine that happening to you. Imagine seeing that take place. It would have been such an incredible moment. Because to persecute the people of God is to persecute Jesus himself. Because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the continuance of his work in the world. Paul persecuted Jesus believing he was serving God. And that most heinous persecution of Christians that he thought to be godly turned out to reveal that he was not at all. And we know from earlier in the book of Acts that what Paul would do is he would enter homes of people who claimed to follow Jesus, forcibly remove them by tying them up, he would make threats of violence and even murder. And then in great cruelty, he would cart them back to Jerusalem to face religious and sociological trial. This was an arrogant, violent, and cruel man. 
That's what he means by saying, I was an insolent opponent. Could you think for a minute in your mind about who is the person that you would be most shocked? I mean, just dumbfounded if they were to become a Christian. See if you can bring somebody to mind. Now, don't shout out their name. They could be in the room. Think of who, like, yeah, I believe God's powerful, but I got a hard time seeing that one happen. You have somebody? Friend, that person is nowhere even in the same hemisphere as Paul. This is literally the last, last, last person who anyone ever would have dreamed would become a Christian and not only become a Christian but become an apostle. This is scandalous stuff. This man hated Christians and churches with religious zeal. And religious zeal is a special kind of evil if it's not turned towards Jesus. It does tremendous harm. Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Who were you, Christian? Do you have a big three? Are you able to identify, here's some particularly awful stuff about me that used to mark my life, but by the grace of God, he has changed me. When was the last time those realities of your sinfulness brought you to marvel at the extent to which you have been forgiven? Those are meant here we see from Paul's example to be kept fresh in our minds because they remind us of how deep and wonderful and marvelous and endless is the grace of God. So what's your big three? These are the occasions in which you willingly rejected God and yet God in his grace pursued you, brother and sister, anyway. My big three are, I've made a list, I stopped at 999,000, but I'll just tell you the three. Mine are that before Jesus, I was a completely self-absorbed person. Everything was about me. Number two, I was defiant to the extent it would shock you. I was defiant against any and every authority in my life. I was sure that I knew and that everyone else was a complete idiot. And I resisted it to the point uh, that I was even permanently expelled from an entire state's public school system. Number three, I despaired life so much that I spent years and years and years and years and years wishing I was dead. I despised 
the life that I had been given. And those three things marked my life pre-Jesus. That's why it is ridiculous that I'm here. There is no other explanation other than the gospel's true and Jesus is still doing this stuff of changing people who are the worst of sinners into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, a display and showcase of his power. Your big three can be used to the glory of God because they demonstrate the extent to which Jesus has transformed you. They ought not be things you never think of or speak. The more honest and transparent we are about the things from which God has rescued us, the better. Because it shines a spotlight on the power of God to change. Now, the way Paul describes this shift in his life and the, the means through which he moves from being a, an unbelieving hater of the gospel to a believing heralder of it can seem rather confusing at first, I think. Verses 12 and 13 and 14, they've got some head-scratching ability in them, especially verse 12. Does, when you first read it, it sounds as though it might be saying, Jesus commissioned Paul as an apostle because Jesus knew unsaved Paul would be faithful to the apostolic ministry. I think on a cursory flyby reading, it seems to say that. Jesus, as he was up in heaven, chilling, he thought, I know a faithful one, the one that's out persecuting Christians. He's going to be great. I got to get him on my team because he's faithful. It seems like that's what it says. But that, that doesn't land quite right. So what did he mean? Friend, when you're reading your Bible, if you come across confusing things like that, like it just sounds like, it seems like that's what that's saying, but I don't know how that could be right. The easiest thing you can do is pray. And then the next thing is pick up another one, two, three different translations of your Bible and read them because they might word it in slightly different ways. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy originally in Greek and very few people know any Greek. And so we, by the grace of God, have the Bible translated into English. And they're making decisions as they translate it to try to express it in the clearest possible way. But sometimes an, an NIV and an ESV will use slightly different language, not because they're using different manuscripts or they've got a different aim, but because they're trying to say it clearly as best they understand it. And so listen to, to verses 12 and 13 in the ESV. It says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus my Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
I discovered this week looking around in other translations that most English translations don't use the word judged. Instead, they use the word considered. Considered. And that helped me, at least, to understand what Paul meant. Here's what he's saying. As I was in the midst of my opposition to Jesus, because I was going to be saved by the grace of God, a power that can renovate anything in anyone, God knew, Jesus knew, that he would be giving me a strength that would make me faithful. And therefore, he considered me faithful before I ever was. He regarded me as that which I wasn't, because when God does something, it's as good as done. Jesus regarded him that which he wasn't yet. So Jesus was actually thinking, this one, this one, is going to stick with this gospel message in such an incredible way because I'm gonna infuse him with strength. I'm gonna redeem him. I regard him as faithful now because it's as good as already accomplished. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. Now, Paul's faithfulness to God didn't move Jesus to save him or commission him. But God's desire to work through Paul as a saved man did motivate Jesus to think of him as faithful. Now, if you're unconvinced, let me show you one other thing in the passage. And this one is a little hard to see because some translations use different precise words. But in verse 12, do you see the word faithful? Because the Lord, because he, Jesus, he judged me faithful. Everybody see that? If you got a pen out and you're, and you're right in your Bible, if you circle that word and then look down in verse 13 to the very last word, the word unbelief. So faithful and unbelief. If we had heard Paul read this out loud or we saw it written in the original language, we would be astonished at what he's saying in those two words, because they're the same word. Except for unfaithful's got a little A stuck on the beginning of it. So here's what I mean. Uh, the Lord judged me faithful even when I was unfaithful. The Lord regarded me as one of faith when I, A, A means without, when I didn't have any faith at all. I thought this stuff was insane. It's a play on words, and it's super cool. Are the pieces fitting together? While Paul was as far from Jesus as he himself could possibly be, Jesus regarded him as faithful because the transforming power of the gospel would change this man from someone who hated the church to someone who eventually would die for her. Friend, if you ever think you have done something so egregious that there is absolutely no way at all 
God could ever do anything good through you. Like, I'm saved, but just that much. I can come on Sundays and sit in a chair and be thankful that I'm going to heaven, but God ain't ever given me anything on a to-do list to bless another person. I'm just too bad. Then look to Paul. Because in looking to Paul, you'll see how God looks to you. There is nothing so heinous that when God strengthens one, forgives one, cleanses one, they are rendered damaged goods forever. In fact, just the opposite. We become displays of the extravagant love and mercy of God. The deeper the darkness, the brighter the light. This grace is highlighted not only in Jesus commissioning Paul to become a preacher of the gospel, an apostle, but also in his conversion itself. Verses 15 and 16 talk about it. I'd love to read it again. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If there were ever someone 100% against Jesus and his people, it's this guy. He was the cream of the crop in Judaism. And he devoted his whole life up to that point to serving God as he understood him. And yet he did not understand him hardly at all. His resume, you can read about in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, where he had attained the highest level of a works-based means of trying to be right with God. And as he looked around, he thought, ain't nobody else who has done this as well as I have. And that sort of religious, self-righteous swagger is what made him so confident that everything he was doing to every Christian was exactly the right godly thing. All the remarkable accolades, every moment of impressive discipline he applied to external conformity to the law had done absolutely nothing to render him near or in a relationship to God. While he hadn't realized it, he was in fact a sinner in need of saving mercy and overflowing grace in ways that he never, ever, ever would have responded to. Friend, if you're here today as a non-Christian, this begs the question, how about you? What are you counting on today to make you right with the creator of the universe? What are you sitting down in and, and having confidence that when you die and meet God, and everyone will, that God will give you favor, not judgment? What are you looking to? For, for Paul, he looked to 
all the good stuff he had done. And he had been an extremely disciplined man. He looked to those religious things thinking those religious things had made him right with God. But not even good things done with bad motives and incorrect assumptions save. How much less things we know are ungodly. Now, did you notice the saying in verse 15? It's sort of Dr. Susie to say there's a saying about a saying, but here's the saying. Apparently, there was in the early church a, a short summary going around. It was sort of shorthand for everything we know about what Jesus came to do. And you would say it to one another to remind each other of the truthfulness of the gospel. It is there in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a great shorthand. I wonder if you'd say it with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This was common knowledge. It grew up out of what Jesus said about himself. It grew out of the visible evidence of a resurrected Lord. It grew out of all the people starting to stack up whose lives were being transformed by this gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People who would never have had peace with God, never have had forgiveness, never have had cleansing, never have had a reason to take another breath, are now given all of that by God. Paul was headed to another city to do more persecution when God intervened. God intervened because that's what God does. That's who he is. He saves. No one earns or deserves right standing with God based on anything but the mercy and grace and patience of God. Christian, have you thought often about the extent to which in your conversion you received mercy? And lots of it. Like if you go later today to get ice cream, and I hope you do, <laughs> and you get a big waffle cone, because the little tiny ones are not gonna hold enough, all right? And you don't get one scoop, who does that? You get at least two, and then you enjoy it a long time. Amen? What we're seeing in this passage is like a eight, nine, ten scoop cone of the mercy of God. And that thing is so big that Paul's showing us by his example, I have lived all these years unable to eat this whole thing. Amazed at the sweet taste of undeserved mercy. I'm just licking away on this thing and I'll never come to the end of it. Do you see that that, Christian, is also yours? 
if you allow yourself to be consumed with the troubles of today, with the pain of the past or present, with the disappointments and life isn't working out like I thought it would, and God, are you really there? I mean, after all, I prayed about that. If you allow yourself down that rabbit hole, you're missing the cone and the scoops of the mercy and grace of God that by taking bites of them every day, you are able to deal with all that other stuff in ways that promote the power of God rather than detract from it. So lick and lick and lick the mercies of God that are yours in Christ. Consider how patient he's been. Consider how loving his disposition is. Consider the scandal of grace that you are. Consider those big three and the way in which those are no longer things to be ashamed of and hide, but rather the occasions upon which you can most clearly say, Jesus saves. And non-Christian, I want to just ask you one more time, what are you counting on to make you right with God? Sometimes Christians can talk and behave in such a way that we sound like we're right with God because look at all this good religious stuff we're doing. I mean, I'm involved in church activities three nights a week. I read my Bible every day. I've got bills and I still give money. And I put up with those weird people in the church. I think God got a pretty good deal with me. Sometimes we display that attitude. And please understand that in so doing, we are acting like fools. That is not why we are saved. We are saved because in the mercy of God, he plucked us out of our darkness and brought us into the light. And he, with his undeserved, unearned, he or she, now is savoring the mercy of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And so, friend, we're not believers because of anything better in us. In fact, we're believers because we're more convinced how bad we are than you are of yourself. Forgive us for the ways in which we may have displayed something different. And look to Paul as an example of the extent to which someone resistant to can be included in the family of God. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What does a non-Christian do about this? Well, it says so right at the end of verse 16. Believe in him for eternal life. There is no cleaning up of yourself you need to do. In fact, that doesn't work. The only one who can give you a full power wash is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in his death, he took the judgment 
and in his life, he gives his life. That people like Paul, and like me, and like you, could enjoy the mercy of God. Come with me first, full circle, back to those first couple of questions I asked you. Believer, how should you think about your past, your sinful past? And of course, that would apply to your sinful present and even your sinful future. But especially because it's the nature of the paragraph we're in, how do you regard, how how should you think about your sinful past? An unbeliever, how should you think about your sinful past? Do you see the answer here? Paul is telling us this. Believer, your sinful past is a trophy of God's present grace. Your stuff back there that alienated you from God is today a trophy of the display that God has created you to be, of his patience, of his love, of his mercy, of his acceptance. Now, maybe you say, I don't feel that way. And I would say lots of times, me too. And so the work we do for one another and in our own hearts from now until Jesus returns or we croak is that we come to terms with the fact that God, God says, I have given you mercy and you are right with me because of Christ. And when Satan and his demons and other people and the circumstances of life come pecking at us and they peck, 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 saying, no, 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 that might work for the rest of them, but not for you. This didn't work. You are still those big three. Then instead of turning inward and morbid and running to things to numb that, we stand up straight and we say, that's a lie. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are not guilty. Jesus took your guilt. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the more you recognize, and I am the foremost, the more you'll be marveling and astonished at the mercy and grace of God given to you. And so when that peck, 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 peck comes, you simply say, I choose to stand with what God says, because what God says is what's true. He has forgiven me and redeemed me. Unbeliever, how can you think about your sinful past? Well, this paragraph, by way of Paul's example, would lead us to know that your sinful past can become a trophy of God's grace. That which shackles you today need not ever shackle you again. 
Because in the gospel, there is an offer of the transforming power of God. If you would believe that Jesus came and that he lived a life of obedience in order that he could die in place as a substitute for all those who come to see they need him, that in that death, the judgment of God fell upon Christ. And in his resurrection on the third day is the reality that that sacrifice was acceptable to God so that God now smiles upon all those who are in Christ and has nothing but grace and mercy and patience and love and power for them. It sounds too good to be true, but billions of people have found it to be just that. And you can too, if you turn from sin and trust in him. Where does all this leave us? Well, it leaves us in a place of praise. That last verse, verse 17, is absolutely incredible. It is an explosion from a grateful man aware of the extent to which he has had mercy scoops and scoops and scoops. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A God who could do that is a God worthy of praise until we are in his presence and we praise him forever. I know of no better setup than for this to lead us into the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, we're in fact praising God for what has been done for us in Christ. In just a minute, we'll have some wonderful church members come and grab these elements here and pass them out. And in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're taking a bit of bread and we're crunching it. And in crunching it, we're remembering the broken body of Christ. Broken so that we, the worst of sinners, could come to enjoy the grace of God given to us in Christ. And then we take a little bit of juice and we drink it, we swallow it, we physically intake it, that we would know and be reminded that we have been partakers of the mercy and grace of God. Not because he got a good deal in us. Not because we did less evil than the next person. But simply because of his astonishing mercy, we have been made trophies of grace. And we don't do this alone at home. We do this here together, why? Well, because there's other people that God's doing the same thing in. And we've been, connected to a family. And by immersing ourselves in the body of Christ, we have help. We have support. We have love. We have a family. And so as we take it, we look around knowing Christ's body was broken for us and Jesus' blood was shed for us. We're not alone. God in his mercy has given us each other. 
if you're going to help pass those out, would you go ahead and come? And to uh, anybody who might be here that's not sure about Jesus yet, please just let that pass. And to, um, to use this time to consider your need for God and to pray about that. The Lord's Supper is for people who've come to trust Jesus Christ and are members of some church where they're experiencing the realities of the family of God. If you are a Christian and you're gonna take these elements, I wanna encourage you to do one thing everybody, two, a second thing if you want to. Number one, would you take them and ponder as you hold them where we all take together the mercy God's been given to you. And number two, if you know your big three and you'd feel so brave, tell somebody sitting around you as the elements are being passed that they might marvel at the grace of God given to you. What Paul does in this passage should be normal. And so if you're there and ready, go for it. If not, that's okay. Let me pray and then these elements will be passed. God, thank you for the grace given us in Christ. Would you help us as we take the bread and the cup to marvel afresh and anew at the mercies of God? We thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. We praise you that you've given us not only eternal life with you, but a family even now in the church. In Jesus' name.